Some of you know that in about a week, I will be traveling to Australia to visit my fiance, Katie. Yes, it's very exciting, <laughs> indeed. One thing that we will not be doing while traveling is driving across the central portion of Australia. You might not know this, but Australia is about the size of America, uh, with the population of a little bit less than Texas, and mostly concentrated on the coast. So what that means is the central part of Australia is one of the most desolate places on earth. You can drive for an entire day and not see a single person. So you can imagine driving across this hot, desolate Australian outback is very dangerous. So it takes planning and proper uh, preparation to stand a chance at safely crossing the desert. An unreliable vehicle is unlikely to be capable of delivering a person from the desert of central Australia. You would not rely on such a vehicle for this task, and yet, when it comes to life, people tend to rely on vehicles that are not only unlikely to deliver, but incapable of delivering us from the deserts of life. Our text today reveals that deliverance is found in God alone and is given to those who trust in him through his redemptive plan. But if deliverance is given to those who trust in God, why does it feel like at times we are walking through the desert? And how do we live in light of this deliverance here and now and not just looking forward to eternity. That's what we will see in our text today. So uh, before we turn there, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you give us instruction, that you have shown us who you are, that we might come to know you. Lord, make us wise for salvation. Let our hearts receive your word today, Lord. We uh, pray that you would speak through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God will deliver those who trust in him through his redemptive plan. We see this in our text. Uh, our text is Isaiah 43:22 to 44:23. So if you have a bulletin, it is there in the bulletin and if you are uh, following along with the Pew Bibles, this is on page 768. Our first point from our text is anticipate our tendency to wander. Last week we saw God's promise to do a new thing for his chosen people, providing for them in a new way. That their response would be to declare God's praise. After such a sweet picture of restoration and proper worship, which was presented last week, God then confronts his people with their current worship. We read in Isaiah 43:22, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me, with your sacrifices. 
I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. We see here the Israelites' tendency to wander from God. This is not to say that the Israelites were neglecting offerings or their religious duties. Israel did not stop offering sacrifices in Isaiah's day. The issue here is that people's hearts had wandered from God. They were observing religious practices, but not in a way that pleased God. So why was this worship not pleasing to God? What we see here is a twisted understanding of the purpose of worship, of the purpose of law and sacrifice. They thought that by religious observance, they would be delivered through the observance. They thought that the law would bring them life, but the law was never able to give life. Instead, the law reveals our own inability to live holy, righteous lives. So the point of sacrifices was not to burden the people, but to release them from their burden of the law by pointing forward to the perfect, complete sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of sin. The language in verse 23, I have not burdened you, indicates that God never intended to make his people subservient to these offerings. Religious observation was not meant to be the master. The substance beneath God's commands was always meant to be God himself. And so his covenant was meant to be the means of relationship with him. And you can imagine, you know, other, uh, other people in the surrounding areas were trying to figure out what their gods wanted. But the God of Israel revealed exactly what he wanted of his people through his covenant. The reason that the worship was not pleasing to God was because the substance between the worship was not God. Rather than serving God, this was describing religious observation in an attempt to get God to serve man. Ultimately, they were not serving God as he is, but a God that they had crafted in their minds to serve him, to serve them, excuse me. This was actually uh, self-reliance that was masked as religion. They were relying on a God that they created. Brothers and sisters, heed this warning. We're not all that different from Israel. Anticipate our tendency to wander from God to look outside of God himself for our deliverance. Sometimes we look outside the walls of the church and we think those are the people that have forgotten God, but we must look inward and ask ourselves. Ask ourselves, is our worship pure? Is God the substance of our worship? As a church, I hope we can say yes to these questions. And individually, I hope that... You can say yes to these questions, but 
we must recognize that no one is immune from the slow drift of vision away from God. So even as we continue to gather for worship week after week, we are vulnerable to fail in missing the point. And I say this not as an admonishment, but as a warning that we can be aware of this tendency to wander from God. We can imagine how this might happen, right? From a personal perspective, most of us probably have experienced some form of wandering off course, right? I know I have. I often, you know, will make a New Year's resolution and then go back to my pre-New Year's habits very short after this resolution. This, if you, if you have not personally experienced this, you probably know someone who has. Uh, At least if you know me, you do. So this common experience ought to awaken us to the fickleness of our mortal hearts. I can be fully resolved, fully resolved to do something in one moment and then completely forget about it in a matter of days or possibly even hours. But this passage is not merely speaking of the unintentional drifting that comes with time, but a willful blindness to God in worship. If we are not careful, our forgetfulness can morph into a type of worship that is not worship at all. This is a different kind of forgetfulness, right? This isn't merely forgetting. This is an, a choice to abandon God and in place craft a new God. A God that can be molded to our desires. It is seeing God by only what he is able to do for us. It's common in our culture to hear something like, just find a God that works for you. Find a religion that works for you. Maybe you've heard something like this. Maybe you've heard, your religion works for me, and my religion, wait, my, your, <laughs> your religion works for you, and my religion works for me. There we go. That wasn't that hard of a puzzle, but for some reason, <laughs> gave me, me a challenge. All right, so here's something that we must realize. God does not work for us. It is not as if by religious observance, we can obligate God to serve us, right? That, we, that would be an abandonment of God's word. That is not following the God of the Bible. So if we're to guard the purity of our worship, we must anticipate our tendency to wander from God. Now, if you are maybe more than just anticipating a tendency to wander from God, but feeling as though you have wandered, listen to our text. There is good news. So our text now directs our attention from the wandering of God's people to the goodness of God. So our second point is behold the goodness of God. If you're taking notes, you'll notice that the first one was anticipate. Second one, behold. Hopefully this will be easy to remember because 
A, B. So let's look at our text. Behold the goodness of God. We see God's goodness in our text in uh, primarily two ways. First, we see the goodness of God's redemptive plan. And second, we see the superiority of God. So first, let's look, starting in verse 25 of chapter 43. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Verse 25 gives us a summary of God's redemptive plan before unpacking it further in the following verses. For his name's sake, he blots out the transgressions of sinful man. To be clear, man does nothing to merit this forgiveness. Verses 26 and 27 make this clear. Man is sinful. We tend to try to justify our sinfulness, but against the backdrop of God's holiness, there is no arguing. We have rebelled against our Creator. God's response in verse 28 is righteous judgment. Let us sit here for a moment. We are fully deserving of God's righteous judgment. If we were to set our case before the Lord, we would have no case. We are guilty. And God, in his justice, will leave no sin unpunished. While it can be hard for us to grapple with the righteous wrath of God when it comes to our own sin, we long for justice. When we see unquestionable evil, we innately long for justice to be delivered. And so, intuitively, we do understand there is a need for judgment. Because without judgment, there is no justice. And so God's goodness is revealed in his judgment and his justice. Chapter 44 begins with a big but. It marks a shift from the pronouncement of righteous judgment to the promise of deliverance for the Lord's chosen people. How can God's justice be upheld and yet sinful people be delivered from a righteous, holy God? 
how can God rightly blot out the transgressions of sinful man? The answer is in the cross. It is because our sinless Savior died and took the penalty for sin that we deserved. The fullness of God's plan for redemption was complete in Christ's work on the cross. In his sinful life, death, and resurrection for the redemption of sinners. Brothers and sisters, behold this truth. Marvel in this truth. Understand that this is a gospel proclamation given hundreds of years before Jesus. For Israel and Judah, this gospel proclamation came by way of promise. And now as we receive this word on the other side of the cross, this proclamation beckons us to behold our risen Savior. There is still promise here, but for us in Christ, we see not only promise, but we see fulfillment. Now we turn to verses 3 to 5 as they describe the life that springs out of God's people as we walk in the Lord's provision. Brothers and sisters, these verses are describing what happens in the church. God has poured out his spirit on the church. He gives us life and he gives it abundantly. He gives us a new name and welcomes us into a new family so that we are no longer claimed by this world, but we are the Lord's. The second way that we behold God's goodness in this passage is found in verses 6 to 8. We read, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. Here we see God's superiority. There is no one like our God. There is nothing that can take his place. Behold, he is the first and the last who declares the end from the beginning. Ultimately, the goodness of God's redemptive plan is a reflection of the goodness of God. When we ponder this work of deliverance for the sinner, we see a God who is rich in justice and rich in mercy. So, if we hear this and we feel the heavy weight of judgment, know that there is an invitation. There is an invitation here for redemption. Do you see God's goodness 
Are you walking in the light of his plan? Do you see his superiority? Who is there like our God? If you are struggling for deliverance, I implore you, behold God's goodness. He welcomes us, sinners, into right relationship with him through his son. He alone can deliver. This point is made even more evident when we understand the utter incapability for anything else to deliver us. And so our next point is consider the folly and deception of idolatry. We read in verse 9, All who fashion idols are nothing. The things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. Let, they shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with, the, with, plans and marks it, with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half of it he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? So, brothers and sisters, we consider the folly of idolatry. Isaiah contrasts God's greatness with the utter folly of idolatry. One commentator called this the absurdity of devotion to the man-made. And indeed, it is absurd. And yet, we often fail to recognize the absurdity. In verse 17, we catch a glimpse of the idol's false promise of deliverance. He prays to it, deliver me for you are my God. 
as if this powerless idol can deliver him. It does not deliver him. It deceives him. This deception is seen in verses 18 to 20. A deluded heart has led him astray. There is blindness to the absurdity of idolatry. There is a delusion in the hope of the idolater. The idol that promises deliverance is not capable of delivering. And yet it is capable of fooling those who seem wise. While the illustration of a man bowing before a block of wood seems foolish to us, and today we, we maybe don't have the same idols made out of wood, right? But we must keep in mind that idolatry has fooled some of the brightest, most intelligent people that have ever lived. A person who is gripped by idolatry is akin to a person building a house on sinking sand. Surely many of us are familiar with this metaphor. But let us reflect just a little bit deeper on this image of building a house on sinking sand. It's costly in many ways to build a house. It requires our time and our effort and our money. It is costly. And so imagine, after all this time, money, and effort, a house is eaten by the sinking sand. What a tragedy. It is a tragedy to seek deliverance from an idol. And tragically, we live in a culture that is filled with idols. Security, prestige, money, self-image, knowledge, celebrity, Mastery of some skill, job success, family success, video games, social media, politics, relationships, and even religious observation that lacks God as the substance. All of this is folly. It's vanity. Ecclesiastes would call this a chasing after the wind. Everyone serves a God. Whatever we think most highly of is our God. Even those who claim they do not believe in a God serve something. Functionally speaking, we all serve some God. Whatever we look to for deliverance is our God. And so when we read, deliver me for you are my God in verse 17, we are confronted with the tragedy of idolatry. If only this G was capitalized. Right? If only... We say, deliver me for you are my God to the God who can deliver. We all have a God-shaped hole in our hearts, and the tragedy of idolatry is also the tragedy of sin. It's that we think it will satisfy us, but it's incapable of satisfying us. And so we come back to this well of salt water when we are in desperate need of the fresh water. So where do we look for our deliverance? Are we looking to God? Do we understand that this God-shaped hole can be filled by God alone? 
So now we turn our attention. We, we have anticipated our wandering. We behold the goodness of God as seen in his good plan and his superiority. And we consider this folly of idolatry. And now what are we to do with this? What do we do now? Our last point is this. Dedicate yourself to remembering what God has done. We read, starting in verse 21, Remember these things, O Jacob, in Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Though Israel had forgotten God, God did not forget them. This is a heavy message that we receive today, but we realize God did not forget Israel. And so he calls them to remembrance. He calls them to return to him. And lastly, he calls them to sing. This means worshiping God as he is. Remember, return, and sing. Sing to God not out of religious obligation, but out of a recognition That there is no other name that redeems. There is nothing that will deliver apart from God. Verses 22 to 23 once again recount the Lord's redemption. When Isaiah writes of this redemption, he writes pointing forward to the redemption that is found in Christ. Notice the order here. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. The beautiful truth is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so he says, return to me, for I have redeemed you. He calls us to return because he has paid the price already. Christ has paid the penalty for sin and was raised so that we have assurance That our sins are indeed forgiven and we too will rise to taste death no more. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. The Lord has done it. It is finished. The redeeming work was finished on the cross. So if you're in a spiritual desert today, know that God delivers those who trust in him. Leave behind your idols and fall down to the one and only God, saying, deliver me, for you are my God. Capital G. For some of us, we know the promises and we look forward to them, but we wonder, how does my life go from this barren place to being like willows planted by a flowing stream? You might say, 
I'm not experiencing what I thought God's deliverance would be like. Whether this is you today or not, we must recognize we will all have seasons that feel like we are walking through the desert. This is part of what it means to be human. So what are we to do? Anticipate our tendency to wander. Ask ourselves, are are we wandering even now? Behold God's goodness. Consider the folly of idolatry and dedicate ourselves to remembering God's redeeming work. Brothers and sisters, this is what we do when we come together as a church. We renew our minds and we refresh ourselves in light of the gospel and encourage each other to behold our magnificent God as we sing his praises together. This might not mean immediate deliverance in the here and now. This is a hard thing to hear. We will still strive and struggle and stumble, but Christ's victory guarantees our eternal deliverance from the grasp of sin and death. So we look forward in hope of the promise and look back in assurance of the fulfillment. Because Christ resurrected, we too will rise with him if we are in him. And so, church, how are we to respond to this message? We respond with this same exhortation given here. Remember, return, and sing. May we respond in praise to our God who redeems. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have delivered. We thank you for the promise of the cross. We thank you for the fulfillment of the cross. Lord, we thank you that we do not remain dead in our sins, but that you have bought us with your precious blood, that we can live in newness of life, Lord. Let us be a church made alive, a church that is like Willows planted by flowing streams, Lord, that receives abundant life in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.